0: Thank you, David. And to all you dads out there, and to my dad, happy Father's Day to you guys. Hey, before we get going into this sermon, I want to take a moment just to pray for our dads. And just thank God for our dads. If you have a dad sitting near you in the room with you, go lay a hand on his shoulder. I want to pray just a prayer of blessing over him from the Heavenly Father himself. At the same time, I know that there are others of us who maybe you grew up without a dad. Maybe your dad passed away recently. Or you have very poor memories of your dad. I want to pray for you too. Because I know today can be somewhat of a sore day. It can bring back some of that. I just want to pray that the Heavenly Father is very near to you. So let's pray together. God, for all the dads who are listening right now, For all those who are uh, joining in and worshiping with us. Father, I pray that you, the most perfect Father, just lay a hand of comfort, restoration, strength, encouragement on each of these dads. Some of these dads, today is fun, today is light. Some of them, it's heavy and they're tired, and they're giving out. Maybe for some of these dads, they can't even focus right now on what I'm praying because kids are crawling all over them. I don't know, but God, I just want to thank you for them. And I pray that you, the Heavenly Father, would show these dads how pleased you are with them for all that they are sacrificing, giving the energy that they're pouring out for their families. God, build them up. Show them what you see in them. And continue to motivate them, God, that they might see their kids as you see their kids. And they would find this fresh strength to want to consistently pour your word, your truth, your encouragement into their families and their kids. For a lot of those listening right now who have lost a dad or maybe didn't have a dad growing up or had very poor memories of their dad. I pray that you, the Heavenly Father, would sit near them. Would comfort them, would show them that you're the God who sees, who knows, and who has a love that no one else can possibly give them except you. God, may today be a day of comfort and hope and healing for them. But we thank you for the gift of fatherhood, for the opportunity to be dad. As well as for all of those who are wrestling with what today means. You are a perfect Father. And if anything else, may we at least see this day as a celebration of who you are. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. Thank you, everybody. Now, we are going to be looking at Acts chapter 11. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up there as we continue looking at the church in motion. Now up until this point, there's been a lot of different obstacles trying to stop the motion of Jesus's church. From beatings, to persecution, to martyrdom, to cultural prejudice, the message of Jesus and the power of God consistently is moving out from Jerusalem. But today, as we look at chapter 11, we're looking at a monumental shift in the life of the church. At this point, this church has mainly been moving across geographical barriers. But today, in Acts 11, it's going to move across cultural barriers. Today, in 2020, we can undoubtedly say that Christianity is the most ethnically and culturally diverse faith In the entire world, ever, hands down. Well, in Acts 11, we're looking at when it first crossed cultural barriers. Now, we've already seen that uh, this Jewish Messiah didn't come just to save the Jews, but he came uh, and we see an Ethiopian eunuch and then Cornelius the centurion who came to faith. But today we're going to look at the first Gentile majority or non-Jewish church, and the pagan metropolis of Antioch in Syria. Now, just to give you a little bit of backdrop here, as you see this map on the screen, Antioch sat about 300 miles north of Jerusalem and about 15 miles upriver from the Mediterranean. At this time, it was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, just behind Rome and Alexandria. It was set at a crossroads of international international trade and travel right on the edge of Asia. So it was a melting pot of Greeks, Romans, Jews, Orientals, all converging together in one place. This city was beautiful on the outside. However, it was spiritually bankrupt, dark on the inside. With all the money passing through, of course, greed was a reality. And where greed is a reality, injustice becomes common. But it also had this moral vibe of Las Vegas. (laughs) With like this pagan cultic feel. I'm not going to say much more just in case kids are watching. But point is that this was a dark place leading us to ask How could this become fertile soil for the gospel of Jesus? Yet, a church was planted right in Antioch. And it even became the first place where these Christ followers were called Christians. Now, Christian was probably a derogatory nickname given to this church from non-believing Greeks because they kept talking about this Christos. But the point is... They were doing something that got the attention of this large, dark city in the Roman world. Have you ever felt like your own culture is too dark to be reached? Have you ever felt like your family members, your neighbors, your friends, maybe even your own kids... Just discouraged, like, how are they ever going to come to know Jesus? Yet we see these Christian believers sail up to the port of this city. And they do not have an established church. There is no VBS program, they have no Hillsong concert, there are no nonprofit ministries going on there. And yet, they begin to transform this city. Antioch even becomes the launching place of Paul's first two missionary journeys to go out to the Roman world. It shifts the entire trajectory of the Roman world. How? How could they walk into a place so dark without any established church and begin something so Culturally shifting. See, these Christians, these Christos people, they saw it as their role to embody Christ. You know, just as God took on flesh and dwelled among us that we might see and know Him, these spirit filled Christians saw it as their responsibility to be the ears, the mouth, the eyes, the hands, the feet of Christ, right in that context. See, our mission as Christians is to embody the hope of Christ, even in the most hopeless of situations. For all of us who have ever wondered, where is God today? What, we're tempted to grow discouraged. I love this story. Because we see the way that these early Christians began to live out the life of Christ through them. So with our own context in mind, how did God use these Christos people to radically transform their city? Check it out with me. We're going to be reading from Acts chapter 11, verses 19 to 30. If you have your own Bible, you can turn there. Acts 11, starting at verse 19. and Follow with me on the screen here. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the grace of, what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and, through the Spirit, predicted that a, fa- a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders. By Barnabas and Saul. Can you pray these words after me? God, open my heart, transform my mind, show me how to embody Christ in my life. Amen. How did these Christians make such a splash in Antioch? Surely they had the latest technology. Surely they had the greatest outreach programs or the best speakers, musicians, campaign strategists to come up with catchy slogans. No, not really at all. Now there's nothing wrong with necessarily using those things, but what humbles me is that they step into Antioch. And here we now see a vibrant, healthy, Christ-exalting community of people that springs up where there was nothing before. How? Because this, for these first Christians, they saw it as their role to embody Christ. But, but what did that look like? And for us in our own context, what does it look like for us to embody Christ in a way that can reach our own culture? even during a pandemic? Well, first, if you're taking notes, I'm going to give you some blanks to fill in here. We are the ears of Christ, listening for the deepest needs and curiosities of our time, and the mouths of Christ speaking his hope to it. Let me say that again. We are the ears of Christ, listening to the deepest needs and curiosities of our time, and the mouths of Christ, speaking his hope to it. Now let's get to this passage. Think through this with me. Persecution was going on in Jerusalem, which was causing the church to be scattered. They're going to places like you can see on this map on the screen. They're going to Phoenicia, the island of Cyprus, as far as Antioch. But they're mainly sharing the message, it says, with Jewish men and women. And and it makes sense. Because Jesus was a Jewish Messiah. And so what they consistently communicated was, here is the Messiah, fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. He was the one who has come to to be God's savior for Israel. And so this consistent place was going because for every Jew they talked to, there's already this foundational understanding of the Old Testament scriptures. But then we see some men from Cyprus and Cyrene. Cyrene's in northern Africa. You can see that map on the screen as well. They traveled all the way to Antioch carrying the message of Jesus, not to Greek Jews, but Gentiles. But you can see the challenge that would be here. Because if they're used to hearing the the gospel message through a Jewish lens, now they have to figure out how do we communicate this in a different way to this different group of people? Because if they showed up in Antioch to all these Greek Gentiles and they said, here's the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, they'd say, what's the Old Testament? Here's Israel's Messiah. Good for Israel. Instead, they had to stop and think, how do we speak the message of Jesus to the questions, as as an answer to the questions that the Greeks are asking. This was a challenge, but it didn't discourage them. Because they did realize one thing that was just as true then as it is today. That wherever there is darkness, there is a deep hunger. Wherever there is darkness, there is a deep hunger. Wherever there is a pursuit of, of money, pleasure, glory, materialism, there is a heart cry saying, where can I find my rest, my fulfillment, my hope? And whether we're in Antioch or Boston, every human being is meant to find rest in their creator alone. So instead of leaning back into the language that they were comfortable with, or just using the customs that these Jews knew, these Jewish missionaries started listening with the ears of Christ for the real needs and questions at a heart level in their city. See, Jesus' ears are always listening for the heart cry. If you remember back in John chapter 4, Jesus is speaking to the, the Samaritan woman at the well. And he's listening through, even though she's trying to deflect away everything he's doing, he hears that she's a woman who craves to be fully known and fully loved. And he speaks right to her heart. And in reaching our own families, our neighbors, our communities, it's crucial that we learn to prayerfully listen for what are the biggest questions of their heart. That may be underneath all that they're saying, but but they're there nonetheless. We can't just be caught up with behavior. We've got to be listening for their heart. As a teenager, I remember this. At time I was sitting with some other teenagers in church. And I had this preacher come up and he was giving a sermon. I don't know what he was saying. But I do remember when this guy in the middle of his sermon stopped what he was doing, turned, looked to us as a clump of teenagers, pointed right at us and he says, Kids, don't do drugs. And I remember just being somewhat shocked. And he did that two more Sundays after that. Whatever he's preaching about, stop, kids don't do drugs. And what I heard was a man who was more interested in my behavior than he was my heart. I'm sure he was a good guy. But I didn't feel like I was known. Or he had a desire to truly understand who I was. And it was was probably two or three months after that that I met a youth pastor and I sat in on a youth service and this youth pastor was talking about how much he had struggled his whole life with self-hatred, but how when he met Christ, Christ began to heal that in him. And as a kid who really didn't like myself, I all of a sudden heard a man who was showing me how the gospel spoke to the deepest needs of my heart and my soul. And to this day, I still credit that youth pastor as one of the most influential people in my life. And it was after He showed me that he understood my own heart cry. That I was willing to hear what he had to say about Jesus. But if we're going to hear somebody, we do have to be willing to engage them. Because there's one thing, it's easy, trust me, I've grown up in church. I know church lingo. I know church way. The name Kirk means church. Like, I get church. And church, it's so easy for us to lean back into the language we're comfortable with and to begin to treat our community like a social club of refuge to keep ourselves safe from the influences of the world and from those who don't act or speak or believe like we do. It's very easy for us to want to separate ourselves and use church as a refuge. But the problem is, if we're never hanging out with anybody who, who, doesn't, who speaks differently, acts differently, believes differently than we do, then we will never truly understand what their heart cry is. But I know sometimes we're afraid that if I get too close to the world, that I might be rejected. Or maybe I'll fall down the slippery secular slope. But when that's our mindset, when we're afraid of the world, our quote-unquote missionary strategy becomes, let's, in our own safe sanctuary, fire our cannons of critique against the culture. Maybe send out a brave missionary once in a while, and then we'll just pray for Jesus to come back. Like, is that a strategy? Probably not. But Jesus is saying... I came to you, and I want you to take me to them. John 20, verse 21, Jesus says, As the Father sent me, I am sending you. But when we learn to engage the world, we're listening for answers to questions like these. Where are people turning for their satisfaction or salvation? Who or what do they trust will protect or fulfill them? What do they see as their purpose in life? Now I'm not saying that you go up to random strangers for of asking them these questions. We've got to build to these, right? And sometimes, you, but we're listening underneath. Say, God, how, are, how is our culture? How are my family members? How are they answering these questions? And after we've learned to listen with the ear of Christ for the heart-level questions, then we can speak the good news of Jesus right to it. So in several different commentaries I was reading on the book of Acts, it said that it was common in the first century Greek world that there were several uh, mystery cults, if you will, that were looking for a divine Lord who could bring and guarantee salvation and immortality to whoever was a part of this cult there were people looking for a lord who could bring salvation what's the heart cry behind that they feared death they wanted deliverance and so it's interesting to me that in acts chapter 11 verse 20 it says that they came preaching the lord jesus now i'm not sure exactly what they said but i can imagine something along the lines of they're saying hey we know that divine one, the son of God who came and took on human flesh, who suffered death, oh, but he rose again, that you might have new life. So you see how the, they allowed the gospel to speak right to that heart cry of the local context, that it became good news for them. Today, there are many people that... Perhaps the heart cry is they crave to be fully loved, but yet there's a burden of guilt upon their shoulders that they do not know what to do with. So we talk about the God who loved them so much that he would forgive them. Or perhaps today there are those who really crave purpose, who want justice in this world, but don't know what to do about it. So we talk about the God who came to satisfy justice Because we were the criminals in his own life. But yet in doing so, he came to give us purpose and move through us to liberate others. Or for others who who are like, I I need to to logically understand some of what's going on. So maybe we start by talking about the resurrection of Jesus. And why we have solid reasons to believe that it actually happened. And that has tremendous ramifications for who we follow but we're listening in order to speak the gospel right to that need. James Emery White, as a pastor, says all this better than than I can, what it means to embody Christ. He says, as Christians, we build bridges of understanding over which the church and the world can walk, meeting over the gospel in the middle, use language and art, experience and relationship, ministry and narrative to both explain and embody God's message to the world. I feel like we can almost go home after that quote. Like, like that that summarizes it perfectly. But when we're saying that we want to engage the world, I do want to preface here that we're not saying that we conform to it either. Because, just like if we don't engage the world, we'll never truly know how to listen. But if we become like the world, if we take on their values, if we begin handling conflict the way they handle it, if we satisfy ourselves with the same things that they're trying to satisfy themselves with, we're no longer embodying Christ and we have no hope to offer them. So we are called to be in the world, but not of it. That we might listen, but also speak to it. And I know that sounds tough. It is tough. It is tough. But that's exactly what the incarnate Son of God and Son of Man came to do to give us hope. So the Antioch Christians learned to listen with Christ's ears and speak with his mouth. But how else did they embody him? What else do we learn from their example and how we are to actually treat one another? See, we have the eyes of Christ looking for the evidence of his spirit at work among us. As Christians, Christos people, we have the eyes of Christ looking for the evidence of his spirit at work among them. All right, so a bunch of things are happening in Antioch. A lot of people are coming to know Christ. And then the apostles in Jerusalem, who consider it their responsibility to guide this movement, get word. And so they want to send one of their best guys, Barnabas, to go check it out. Now, Barnabas, I would love to have been Barnabas' friend. Like, I love this guy. He's one of those guys you definitely want to hang out with. But I can still, putting myself in Barnabas's shoes, going up to Antioch, you're visiting this new church, you're walking into this crowded, probably, house, and it's going to look nothing like the Jerusalem Jewish church. If anything, these Antioch Greeks... They are a bunch of babies in the faith. They're probably still cussing. They're wearing Woodstock t-shirts. They're using you know soda and Cheez-Its for communion. Like, they're, they're miles away from godly relationships. Like, this is not going to look like a clean place at all. And for any of us looking at this situation with human eyes, we'd be tempted to be discouraged. Because this community would look about as impressive as the Sandlot baseball team. But see, human eyes tend to look for what's possible in our own strength. Human eyes look for the ones who were already put together. Charismatic, talented, knowledgeable, wealthy. Because I can see how God can use that person. Human eyes also tend to pay attention to to all the reasons All the things that are wrong with people. They are so annoying. They are so dramatic. They are fake. They are controlling. But when Barnabas assesses this whole scene with the eyes of Christ, he sees something different. Barnabas was a man full of the spirit and faith, it says. And he saw how the grace of God was at work among them. I like to imagine that phrase, how oh, the grace of God was at work among them it was like, yeah, it was messy, but God was there. Because even though they might have been wearing Woodstock t shirts and eating soda and Cheez Its for communion, they were praising God and they were learning about Jesus. Some of you who maybe remember the Jesus movement back from the, <laughs> the 60s and 70s, maybe you can relate and know exactly what he's talking about here. But Barnabas, being a man well acquainted with the Holy Spirit, was looking for the fruit or the evidence of the Holy Spirit there. Looking at this scene, if it were a garden, it would have been full of weeds. But Barnabas is looking for the fruit, the evidence of love, joy, peace, patience. Why? Because he knows that the potential of this community is not in their human strength, is not by might nor by power, but is by the Spirit of God that was at work among them. He needed to know, is the Spirit here? And then like a good farmer, he knew it was his job to do whatever he could to cultivate that fruit that was already growing. See, when we ask God to give us the eyes of Christ, we start seeing people like he sees them. No matter how much construction is left to go in their lives, he begins to see his spirit at work. You know, one of the things I love about my dad being Father's Day is that on the day, even on the days where I was really not proud of myself, my dad made a point consistently to say, son, I'm proud of you. It was his way of saying, son, I see in you the potential, even if you don't see it. That's the the eyes of Barnabas. That instead of just looking for the flaws, that he was looking for love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I want to challenge us as a church today, this week. Think of others in this church. And I want you to look for the evidence of the fruit of the Spirit of God in them. Any of these qualities I just put up. And I want you to tell them about it. Encourage somebody. Say, hey, I'm seeing God at work in your life in these ways. Pick somebody that maybe you wouldn't pick normally. And reach out and encourage them. But when we start seeing the evidence of God in one another, then we start looking for ways to lift each other up. So Barnabas, looking at this whole scene, realizes, okay, God's at work here, but we need, uh, I need another farmer. Somebody who's, who's good at telling the soil even better than I am. And so he remembered Saul. Saul, the man who was called to be a messenger to the Gentiles. Now, backstory. Saul, it's been about nine years, they think, since Saul was converted on the road to Damascus. Nine years since Saul was given the call to be a missionary to the Gentiles. But where has he been? Well, he went to Jerusalem for a bit, but then he's mostly been in Tarsus, his hometown. Just a quick parenthesis here. Sometimes God gives us a word. He shows us what he's called us to do. But sometimes we are called to wait for a while before we actually see him telling us to step out in it. But yet Barnabas shows up one day in Tarsus and he says, Saul, I got a job for you we got a church in Antioch. God's doing powerful things. I need you to come with me. And see, what I love about Barnabas here is that Barnabas could have treated Antioch like an opportunity to make a name for himself. He could have treated Antioch and and, and, and been a little insecure and, and say, well, I don't want Saul to come because everybody's going to see that he's a better teacher than I am and I I, I can't deal with that. No, instead, he's, he's not... He's already secure in who he is in Christ. He already knows what God has called him to do. And that allows him to come and see Saul and says, buddy, I want to empower you. I'll move out of the way that you might be able to lift up and fulfill your God-given calling on your life. And as a result of lifting one another up, this church continued to reach their city. So these Christians, they were seeing with the eyes of Christ, listening with the ears of Christ, speaking with the mouth of Christ. But last, how did they embody him? And how can we? We are the hands and feet of Christ, giving his love to the areas of deepest need. One day in Antioch, a prophet named Agabus, I dare one of you to name your next kid Agabus, Agabus, or at least your next pet. But Agabus shows up and he announces to the church that a nasty famine is about to hit their region of the world. Now, don't you kind of wish God had warned us ahead of time before this whole pandemic hit? I sometimes do, but needless to say, he shows up and he says that a, a severe famine is about to hit their region of the world. And non-Christian historians confirm that during the time of Claudius that there was a a severe famine where the supply was so low that only the rich could afford food, but many of the poor uh, were starving. So he gives them a heads up. But what's amazing to me is not that the prophecy of Agabus was fulfilled. What's amazing to me is how this church chose to respond. And if their first reaction was not, oh, no, how are we going to survive? Nor did they (laughs) sit back and say, well, if the famine's coming, then it must be because of the culture, and they started pointing fingers and blaming everybody for it. Nor did they say, well, this must mean that Jesus is coming back, so I'm just going to lean back and not do anything. Instead, as Christians, they realized, oh, well, if God is telling us about this, and he's taking us through us, then he must want to do something through us. Christ said, as the Father sent me, so am I sending you. And I love this because it informs our present pandemic so well. And how we as the church can respond. Because their response to this crisis was threefold. Number one. They look to see who's most at risk. Number two. Who can we help? Or what can we do to help? And number three. Who can we send? Being an economically prosperous place. The Antioch church probably had some coinage. But the Jerusalem church. Because of all the persecution. They were quite poor. So. In such a display of respect and humility. The new church looks back at the old church. And they said, we've got to support them. The gospel came from the Jews in Jerusalem. And so they, now these, these Greek Gentile Christians are looking back and saying, all right, now we're going to give back to them. What a beautiful display, because that's exactly what family does for each other. The Antioch church didn't say, well, we're the new game in town, good luck. They said, no, no, we see it as our responsibility to come behind you. We stand on your shoulders and we are going to support you. And as I've looked at this situation and how they responded, and I've looked at our own church and how we s- sought to respond during our own pandemic, I just want to say... I couldn't help but to grow grateful for this church community because ever since this pandemic hit, I've been hearing people say over and over again, hey, number one, who are most at risk? What can we do to help? Who can we send? I've had people say, hey, what, what teams do you need? I've had our elders, deacons, have been calling the lonely, the elderly. We've Our deacons have helped... I think, since this whole thing broke out, 18 different people given out almost $2,000. Been, they've been visiting, caring, giving. You guys continue to support the mission of this church financially. And in doing that, you've, we've been able to support several mission partners going through this season. The generosity has been real. And my encouragement to all of us today, coming right out of Galatians 6-9, is let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Guys, I know it's been over three months of this pandemic. This got old a month ago. So many of us were feeling tired, depressed, depressed motivation is low we're having a hard time (laughs) staying even keel we're edgy we're not thinking straight but I remember the words of David Psalm 73 though my heart and my flesh may fail the Lord is my strength forever remember the words of Paul who after all that he was experiencing in his life, he said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And here's the thing, church. When we talk about embodying Christ, we're not just talking about all the things he wants to do through us. We're talking when when, when we embody Christ, his very strength is present within us. He is there to lift up our weary. Weary souls, and then move us out in His strength to continually reveal His hope to the world. I wish a lot of things were different right now, just like you. I wish so many other things would open up. I wish so many things would be true of this world. But one thing that I do want to encourage you is you guys are doing it, you're being the church. You're stepping out in boldness. You you, you are reaching out, giving to those in need. But none of us have ever been through a pandemic like this. We said that in the beginning, but guess what? Three months in, we still haven't been through a three-month pandemic before. It's still new. And it's a marathon that we feel like we're running. But yet you're still encouraging. You're still reaching out, though you're tired. So lean in to the strength. Of Christ we have his very spirit within us and our mission as Christians is to embody the hope of Christ even in the most hopeless of situations to be his ears to hear the heart cry his mouth to speak hope his eyes to see the evidence of God's spirit his hands and feet to help those in deepest need to demonstrate his love. That's what it is to be a Christian. That's what it is to be the church. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, I pray that this word would go and resonate and strengthen your people. That they would know that you are a God who sees them. You see how they feel and in fact you are sitting with them in their tiredness you're sitting with them in their discouragement and in their grief and all this frustration God I pray that today's message will not feel like a oh I gotta do one more thing but that today's message will feel like a wow I, I do have the power of Christ within me and I get to be his hope in the midst of a hopeless world it's not hopeless because you have come You lived, you died, you rose again, that we might have new life. You have defeated sin, death forever. And so may you empower us as your people to embody Christ. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.